Welcome to the Public Health Power Hour podcast, a recording of live conversations with public health experts on the most important global health issues. I'm Steve Hamill, Vice President of Policy Advocacy and Communication at Vital Strategies. We're a global health organization and we're reimagining public health. At Vital Strategies, we believe that public health is everything that surrounds you that makes great health possible. That means clean air and water, access to medicine and quality care, healthy food and places to get exercise, and removing bias and discrimination in healthcare. Here on the Public Health Power Hour, we get together to look at how the world around us shapes our health and how we can shape the environment so that everyone everywhere has the potential for great health. And if you want to join our conversations live, please follow us on Twitter under the handle VitalStrat. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Public Health Power Hour. My name is Deborah Charles. I'm a former foreign and White House correspondent and am currently overseeing the global news operation at DevEx, and I will be hosting today's conversation. The Public Health Power Hour is a live discussion show about public health on Twitter spaces. It's also recorded as a podcast, and you can find it on your favorite podcast platforms like Apple or Spotify. Vital Strategies is working to reimagine public health. This means everything that surrounds you, the natural and built environment, policies and culture, everything that makes good health possible. And now, after we've had two years of COVID-19, nearly six million deaths, shattered economies, and, and so many lives have been impacted, there's just so much more to do to protect people's health. Public health can be better, bolder, and stronger. And this year, Vital Strategies is dedicating the Power Hour to discussions with experts and advocates to think about the how, prompting them to paint a picture of this future by asking, what if? And so this month, to commemorate Women's History Month and International Women's Day, which is the day where we celebrate the social, economic, cultural, and political achievements of women, and focus attention on women's rights and challenges, the Public Health Power Hour is dedicating the next two discussions to women's health and leadership. And in today's episode, we're going to be looking at women's health, particularly on the African continent, and asking, what if women's health in Africa centered global equity? Our discussions are guided by our listeners, and we've been taking questions on Twitter all week. Uh, we look forward to your feedback, including ideas for future discussions, feedback on our shows, or questions. So you can just send us an email at powerhour at vitalstrategies.org. Okay, well, I'm excited to introduce our panelists to you today. And uh, just as we get started, a note that all of our speakers today are participating in their personal capacity. And their statements today represent their personal points of view and not necessarily that of their organizations. So we like to get started just with a little news icebreaker. We'll start by asking each panelist to share a news story that recently caught their eye. So let me introduce our guests one by one and see what news they've picked out for us. Marianne Etiabet serves as the AVP for Health Equity at Merck and the lead at Merck for Mothers which is Merck's $500 million global health initiative aimed at creating a world where no woman has to die giving life. Welcome, Marianne. Thank you. Good morning. Well, good afternoon. You're good morning, I think. Yes. <laughs> which article did you want to share with us today? Uh, thank you so much, Deborah, and thank you for the team at Vital Strategies uh, for hosting this Power Hour and, and for the invitation. So I know you mentioned, you know, that you wanted to focus uh, this discussion on what is happening on the African continent, of which I'm from, you know, born and bred in Lagos, Nigeria, and I'm proud of that. But I also wanted to... Um, kind of provide some context about what we're seeing on the continent is what we're seeing all over the world. You know, I'm calling in sitting in Brooklyn and on CNN uh, just last week, you know, there was a headline, the USC's continued rise in maternal deaths and ongoing inequities, a CDC report shows. This came out during Black History Month. And what it showed was that Black women are even more 
likely to die due to preventable causes of childbirth um, and pregnancy than white women. Uh, the factor was about 2.3, 2.4 times about two years ago. Now it's almost three times more likely. We are going in the wrong direction. Um, the inequities and the disparities gaps are increasing, and, and that's just not what we should be seeing. And so I bring that up because this really is a global issue. Uh, you know, we need to come together across borders <laughs> to really look at what the root causes are uh, and, you know, work together, have a collective call to action so that we can make sure, you know, my organization, you know, our mission is to make sure that no world, um, sorry, no woman has to die while giving life. Yeah, it's a really good point, too. We're focusing on Africa, but it is a huge problem. And look at that. That article is a really good example of that. Um, thank you. That's a great one to share. Um, let me move on to our sec uh, next panelist, which is, who is Dr. Onikepi Owolabi, and she is the program director of the new Data-Driven Policy Initiative to Improve Women's Health at Vital Strategies. She currently oversees the implementation of programs aimed at strengthening the use of national reproductive health data for decision and policymaking. Welcome, Oni. Which article caught your eye this week? Uh, thank you very much, Deborah, for hosting and for having me. And like Dr. Tiabed said, Lagos born and bred. Um, the article that caught my eye this week is also something that has been happening a lot globally for many years, but all of them um, has more recently been measured. And it was also in CNN. I, it, it had a very catchy title. It's part of the CNN series on gender equality. It was called This Global Public Health Challenge Affects One in Four Women. Where's the outrage or plan? And it was basically talking about the very high incidence of intimate partner violence amongst women globally. Um, in a paper cited in The Lancet, one in four women have experienced intimate, intimate partner violence, and it starts pretty young. Uh, a quarter of 15 to 19-year-olds have experienced this. And we know that this is not all the violence women experience. And like Dr. Tebet said, it's very startling because it feels like in 2022, when there is supposed to have been so much progress made in gender equality and in women's rights, that we are not headed in the right direction at all with intimate partner violence. And this has a um, substantial impact on women's health, their physical health, um, um, actual, you know, trauma, um, unintended pregnancies and its outcomes, and of course their mental health. And it doesn't just affect them, it goes on to affect families, generations of girls. And um, in the new Vital Strategies Initiative, we are looking at working with governments to strengthen their ability to collect data on indicators that measure all kinds of women's health outcomes, and then to use this data to drive policies and plan programs and interventions that improve women's health outcomes in the countries we're working in. Thank you. That's a that's a really great article. And I think we've written at DevEx too, some, you know, just how that issue and the problem of, of violence among intimate partners has worsened during the pandemic. Um, so it's super, that's a really important, and thanks for sharing that one. Um, let me move on to our third panelist, Dr. Justine Bukenya, who is a medical doctor and a lecturer at the Department of Community Health and Behavioral Sciences at Makera University in Kampala, Uganda. Justine has been conducting research among vulnerable populations, especially women in Kampala. Welcome, Justine. Uh, which article would you like to share with us? Yes. Hello, listeners. It's a pleasure sharing with you our experiences from Uganda. Uh, over the past few months um, in Uganda, we've registered uh, high numbers of um, teenage pregnancy, and this was reported by the United Nations Population Fund. Uh, in the independence paper, where it was indicated that over 650,000 adolescents had conceived. Some of them have delivered, but others are still carrying the pregnancies. And uh, these high numbers uh, are attributed to some of the negative social norms, beliefs, and practices, like the female genital mutilation, where young girls are prepared for marriage, uh, and since these girls were out of school for the last two years, they were very available for the elders to conduct these practices. Secondly, there was low knowledge about self-sex practices, especially among young people, both girls and boys. 
Unfortunately, most of our research and programs are focused on the girl child, and little is invested in the men and the girls and the boys who are the drivers of these um, teenage pregnancies. The boys uh, need to know more about sexuality and the effects of teenage pregnancies to these young girls. Uh, fortunately, as far as the teenage girls are concerned, the government opened up doors for them to join, to continue with this uh, education. So they were given a second chance to go back to school. Uh, some of them have taken this up positively, but uh, the early research is indicating that many of them are facing stigma. Uh, they do not have adequate social support in terms of taking care of the babies, where to breastfeed from, and generally more economical support to look after themselves and the babies. Uh, however, a good number are still in, uh, in the villages. They've not gone back to school. Though some NGOs are really encouraging them to go back. But the bigger question for us as people who are in for public health, we are wondering what kind of generation of mothers are we going to have years to come who have experienced rape, child marriage, and who are not educated? So this is a population we need to focus on moving forward. Thank you, Justine. That's a great one, and it's a perfect... It will be uh, obviously something we're going to be talking about during the, the main part of this presentation, so this panel. So thank you very much. That's a great one. I... Um, I get a chance to do this too. So uh, my article that I wanted to um, share with everyone will probably not surprise people that it's actually from DevEx. Um, and I'm sort of skirting the rules a little bit here because it was published a week ago. So we were supposed to do in the last week. And this is exactly a week ago. And it was our obituary of Dr. Paul Farmer. And the, the story was entitled Paul Farmer's Lasting Legacy, The Quest for Equity in Global Health. And I think this article just really points to the outpouring of testimonials that have come in since um, Paul Farmer's death about how he confronted and reconceptualized notions of who deserves care. And one quote of his in this story really feels relevant today. Do we want global health to be radically different from colonial health or tropical medicine? He asked in an interview last year. If so, then let's stop referring to it as global public health or global health security and start calling it global health equity. And, and he saw that as the beginning of a fundamental reorientation of a system that he called overly colonialist in nature and focused on control over care. The idea behind global health equity is to break that bond, he said. To do that, we must address health disparities wherever they occur. I just felt that article just was a really good overview of Paul Farmer's life, which I think we've all been talking a lot about lately, but I think it fits very well with our, our um, conversation today. So moving right along to our conversation, our topic today about we're discussing what would happen if we made gender equity a key element of women's health. Um, and let's, Marianne, I'm going to begin with you. Uh, mm -hmm. Merck for Mothers partners with organizations, including governments, NGOs, research institutions, and businesses. Um, to promote safe, high-quality, respectful maternity care, and to improve health comes health outcomes in I think about fifty countries. Correct. So, what are some of the challenges? And this is a very broad question, but what are some of the challenges facing the programs that you partner yeah. with? Yeah, uh, Deborah, I, you know, love to answer that question, but I I can't start uh, without responding to you know some of the other things that I heard uh, from Oni and from Justine and from you as well. Uh, you know, I think um, some of the shocking uh, statistics and experiences that were shared around uh, the lives of women and girls as they're experiencing and uh, the, the effects of the pandemic, you know, really speak to, uh, you know, what we call those social determinants of health, you know, those those social, economic and cultural conditions that that we all live in. And, you know, oftentimes can have, you know, actually, uh, you know, are are responsible for up to 80%, you know, of the health outcomes that we all face. And we see this in maternal health and maternal mortality, where the disparities we see, you know, you spoke about equity, 
they're not just a you know vital sign of the system or a reflection of the health system. They're they're actually a reflection of our society. Uh, they're a vital sign of our society. They're a vital sign of how equal uh, uh, experiences of women and girls are. You know, as as they as they uh, live, work, you know, play, worship, get educated in in our societies. And so we we can't not think. Uh, about all of those, uh, how all of those things intersect. And I think for maternal health uh, and for women's health or adolescent health, girls' health, you know, that confluence of, you know, whether it's racial inequity or gender inequity or inequity caused by poverty or religion or ethnicity or or, or nationality, all of those things, uh, you know, kind of inform uh, how health is experienced and how lives are lived. So, you know, I definitely wanted to, uh, you know, just thank uh, Uni and Justine for for bringing those things up because we we can't, uh, you know, not be cognizant of them. And related to, uh, you know, your comment uh, about um, uh, Paul Farmer, uh, you know, thinking about if we, you know, valued all lives equally, you know, if we made the decision, you know, that uh, we value the lives of women and girls, uh, then we wouldn't see, uh, you know, these these health inequities. And and so I'm just, you know, excited that we are having that uh, conversation, uh, you know, right now. And so to, to get back to your question uh, around what are some of the challenges that uh, the programs that we partner with are facing, uh, you know, they're exactly what has already been raised. Uh, you know, I think historically, and you started to talk about, uh, you know, is what we're doing now really just, uh, you know, kind of another permutation of uh, colonial health or, or tropical medicine? Uh, you know, I think where we need to go as a community is to not think about health um, as just uh, working within the health sector, you know, thinking about vertical, you know, programming, uh, uh, sitting, you know, sitting in our offices and, and coming up with technical solutions, uh, you know, that that we try and implement. We need to move away from that paradigm and, you know, start to really understand the lives these women and girls are, are walking in and, and how we can support those journeys. And so, you know, I would actually say that so many of our partners are, are meeting these challenges and, and working, uh, you know, across sectors to create, you know, multifaceted, multi-sectorial, uh, you know, responses, uh, you know, to these challenges. And just, you know, we'll say during COVID, uh, where we had such difficulties in uh, reaching, uh, you know, communities, uh, you know, due to those conditions uh, because of investments in, let's say, digital technologies or investments in, uh, you know, healthcare teams that were embedded in communities. uh, You know, our programs, our partners were able to keep up communication, two-way communication with the clients that they were serving and be able to pivot, be agile, respond to the new needs and and build upon uh, investments that had been made before. And I think it's it's that agility um, that we need to be able to um, build in our health systems because our health systems will, will you know, continue to experience shocks. And if, if they are not able to uh, be agile, be durable, be resilient, uh, you know, we're going to continue to uh, let down uh, women and girls. I would say the other thing that we've been really inspired and proud about is uh, because of our kind of private sector um, approach, uh, you know, to some of these challenges, we really do have this investment model, uh, investing in local entrepreneurs, um, uh, sustainable business models, small and medium enterprises. And those investments uh, were actually, uh, you know, investing in people, investing in communities, investing in economies. We saw COVID not just take lives, but take livelihoods. And this type of investment strategy, um, I think, was really inspiring to see because uh, our partners really were were able to respond to the changing needs on ground uh, in a way that uh, saved lives. Did you notice that we're... It, were there an increasing number of women in sort of leadership positions, even w- among entrepreneurs, or if there weren't, would it have made a difference and made it even, would it made a difference, I suppose, without leading um, you? <laughs> it, it's no, I mean, a great question. I would say that, you know, we were very intentional 
uh, about wanting the means, you know, to be the end, you know, so how do we surface, uh, find, um, support, uh, women, you know, women entrepreneurs, um, uh, investments, uh, in, in women healthcare leaders. I'll share one example, uh, that we've invested in. It's the, the Unjani network of clinics in South Africa. These are nurse led, you know, clinics, uh, businesses, uh, that have an affordable primary care model. You know, it's basically a clinic in a container, you know, that, that are, uh, able to be replicated in, in rural communities or, or communities, uh, you know, with, without a lot of healthcare, um, access to healthcare services. And that's an investment in a woman as a business owner. Um, it's, it's creating jobs at the same time as meeting a huge gap uh, in access to affordable primary health care, uh, you know, in those communities. So I think you have to be intentional about this. Back to the um, topic of, of, of the day, how do we think about gender um, equality? You, you can't be gender blind. You know, gender blind is not gender neutral. And so you have to set up those processes um, to be intentional about uh, investing uh, in ways that are going to make a sustainable difference. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, thank you. That's, that's really helpful. Let me move over to Justine as more of as a, you know, sort of a practitioner in Kampala. What, what are some of the issues you're seeing and maybe some of the approaches that, that you're implementing to address some of the challenges? Yes. Um... My research really focuses more on marginalized communities um, and marginalization really is informed by gender identity, sexual orientation, age, uh, physical ability and migration status. So I've been doing a lot of work among female sex workers, uh, transgenders, adolescents and people in refugee settings and uh, um, mothers with disabilities. Uh, what we've observed is that uh, most of the marginalized people are women compared to men, and um, most of them do not easily access health services, including reproductive health services. Uh, they are not really informed about what's going on, where to get services and how to access them. Uh, they experience a lot of vulnerability, uh, including gender-based violence as the only pointed it out. So, and this marginalization when it comes to accessing uh, services uh, is informed by gender also stigma. We see most of these um, marginalized people being discriminated. Uh, for example, when it comes to maternal services in my country, uh, the government is providing free services, so we'd expect most of the mothers, expecting mothers to come to facilities. And indeed, for example, the female sex workers do access the services. But what came out of our research is that when they come, they cannot openly declare what kind of job they are doing because of the stigma and a fear of being abused or sometimes just away from the facilities or denied services. Uh, so they just keep quiet. And for, by them keeping quiet, they miss out on services. For example, according to our policies, uh, people who are involved in sex work, they are supposed to be tested every three months. But the health workers, if they don't get to know the kind of um, mother in front of them, they will not test them as expected. So at the end of the day, they end up having children when their HIV status is positive, yet they would have benefited from services that stop transmission of HIV to the young baby. So, and what we are really looking at, the, the we have a lot of, there is no data, no adequate data coming through to highlight the disease burden among the minority. So when it comes to programming, it's really hard to see the magnitude of the problem and how to tackle it. So of late, fortunately, we are conducting research that is focusing on marginalized people more to women compared to men, though so many have their issues. And we are designing interventions that really promote individual or person-centered care so that whenever an individual comes to the health facility, is treated as an individual, not as a group of people, so with peculiar needs. And we are encouraging our 
providers to spend time with these people so that they are able to pick uh, issues and so that they are able to benefit from the existing facilities. And, and Another, how, oh, sorry, I was just going to ask how you empower, like, how do you get these, how do you give, um, empower some ordinary, like, women just to be able to help shape how things are done, shape the health practices? Yeah, so what we did, we realized that they have their peers or peer leaders who uh, look to be at a better advantage. So we use them as conduits to reach out to the people in the community to encourage them to come to the facility. Some of the hospitals have special clinics for them with these people already there to guide them on how to navigate the health facility to get uh, uh, move a little faster through the system so that they're able to get uh, services. But this looks a bit costly, but at the end of the day, we are really encouraging them to speak out, you know, so that they are able to get services. Because they initially they had fears that, for example, if uh, sex working is illegal here, so they had fears that if we report to health workers who are paid by government, they are likely to report us to the police, and at the end of the day, we may be put into prison. So we are trying to encourage them that the health workers are there for you, to provide services irrespective of your job. So don't fear them. Trying to empower them not to fear the health facilities and health workers in government setting. Yeah, it sounds like education is so important in that element, just being able to explain that to them so that they will come to you. That's really helpful. Thank you. Um, if I, I'd like to move over to Oni. And so at Vital Strategies, you work in partnership with government um, counterparts and other organizations on the ground to support data collection and surveillance in order to affect policy change and improve program outcomes. I mean, Justine just talked about the value and the need for data. Uh, can you can you highlight the importance of this work and how how COVID has impacted your priorities? Yeah, sure. And like you said, Justine set me up really nicely. And um, it was very exciting to hear about some of the work Marianne spoke about in South Africa. And of course, data is um, one of the dull bits, but of course, most useful bits of any kind of program implementation or research we do because it enables us to estimate the prevalence of the problem, to set um, benchmarks for what we would like to achieve and to track progress towards these benchmarks. And even though it, that seems like you know, a very fundamental thing, like you, know, you should eat breakfast before you go to school, the infrastructure to collect complete and high quality administrative data locally has not dramatically improved in many low and middle income countries over very many years. And so um, a lot of my work is in Rwanda, Bangladesh, and Uganda. And we focus on strengthening these kinds of surveillance systems where women um, um, suffer many adverse outcomes due to their reproductive and maternal health. Um, one big thing to say is that a lot of the data that is readily available, because if you do look in the literature, you'll see lots of things like, oh, there's data, and we want to do big data mining and data analytics, is driven by donor and global reporting. While this process has been very useful because it has helped to generate standardized and comparable indicators, it is often collected by a parallel system. So independent research organizations and universities and does not tend to actually strengthen government-owned health surveillance systems. And for this reason, it can often not speak to the needs of smaller administrative units, so districts, host individual hospitals, local governments. And because, you know, it's not locally owned, of course, when parallel data systems are used, it's reported at high-level meetings um, within, you know, global fora. The data isn't owned by the country. And policymakers either don't use it or don't know how to use it to drive local agenda. Now, that said, the transition from whatever data exists to policy is not linear. And what we really want to do is to help the policymakers in country be able to collect their data if they're not already collecting it. If they are collecting it, then we're working with them to try to understand the quality of their women's health data. When we understand the quality of their women's health data, then we want to push them further by showing them how to analyze it. And this is both the technical capacity to analyze it and then how to present it in formats that policymakers can then discuss and use to make decisions or change policies or develop interventions to ultimately get to women and improve their health. Now, um, as anticipated by many people in the world, COVID disrupted health systems significantly in many countries. And with, the, with these disruptions and governments scrambling, you know, to deal with an acute 
epidemic or pandemic, because it was global, many things were affected. The supply chain for reproductive health commodities, the availability of healthcare, what was considered essential healthcare. And in many places, even though it was not desirable, women's health was shut at family planning services, clinics were closed and women couldn't access antenatal care, school openings, which had an impact on um, teenage pregnancies and, you know, there's a huge, there's a large population of young people who might not make it back to school. And in our data, this is starting to show up as either missing data or poor quality data. And then in some countries where they were able to sustain data collection, we're seeing spikes in teenage pregnancies, we're seeing drops in antenatal care utilization, we're seeing spikes in maternal mortality in the work I do with Justine in Uganda. And so a lot of our work is now critical to our government partners as they are grappling with the negative impacts on the pandemic on women's health. They want us to help look at trends in their data, what went wrong. They're looking to rebuild the capacity of the health system to provide essential healthcare and to be more stable if there are future emergencies. Um, as part of our work, like I said, we're training them on how to use this data, how to think about this data. But we hope at the end of this to be able to emphasize to them that SRH is critical even in times of crisis and that being able to strengthen the underlying health management information system and the processes of collecting vital registration data, birth, death, marriage, will help them ensure that women's health is protected because women often are more vulnerable during pandemics like COVID. It, and this sort of leads to my next question, I guess, which is more, um, and I, I think this, I could see a question for each, all of you in this. I'd love to hear what you all think. Um, just this, you know, the recent report from the high-level commission on the Nairobi summit on ICBT, ICBD-25 said the global pandemic has really highlighted glaring inequalities of people who face different types, different and often insect, intersecting forms of discrimination, which several of you talked about based on gender, race, age, disability, income, status as a migrant or refugee. Um, Marianne, can you talk about any kind of changes or new methods that have emerged to deliver care in a way that sort of centers gender and improves quality and access? Thank you so much for the question, Deborah. And I'd, I'd like to link it to some of what Oni mentioned about where we invest, uh, because, you know, one of the things I feel very strongly about is if after your investment, uh, what was built or what was created or the impact that you were able to have is not sustained, then, you know, I, I think you haven't been successful. And so when we pour resources into, you know, monitoring and evaluation uh, systems that are not strengthening, uh, you know, the, the broader uh, healthcare, um, you know, monitoring system that that Oni mentioned, we're we're not um, we're not being responsible stewards of these resources. And while it be may be more complex, uh, it may take longer, uh, it may be more complicated. Uh, we we need to uh, orient around that perspective because if not, uh, you know, we, we don't have enough resources to go around. And so we need to make sure that whatever that we're doing, uh, you know, really is a, a down payment on sustainability uh, and for the future. Um, to now link that to your question around, you know, what are some of the models that, you know, that may uh, be uh, working uh, uh, around uh, advancing equity in all its different shapes and forms. I really think the innovations are around process. How do we make sure that our processes uh, for identifying solutions, for designing solutions, for targeting and committing resources and budgets uh, against solutions uh, all of those uh, processes need to be inclusive. And around the question uh, for advancing gender equity in health, uh, we need to make sure that, as uh, Justine mentioned, women uh, and girls with the lived experiences, women and girls uh, you know, that we are aiming, hoping to serve, that they are fully integrated uh, into the way we work, uh, what we do, and how we evaluate our success. And I'll, I'll share our uh, you know, own experience with this because I do think, again, back to this data point, 
that if you do not look at the data, uh, you are very likely, uh, you know, to be walking blind, uh, you know, un, un, without understanding or being unconscious, uh, you know, to what biases that you may actually be uh, perpetrating through your processes and your systems. You know, at Merck for Mothers, one of the things that we've done is, you know, really interrogate our own internal processes and systems and, you know, ask ourselves, uh, you know, are these fully inclusive? Are we fully, you know, integrating uh, the uh, recommendations, perspectives, insights, solutions of, of the, you know, women and girls we aim to serve? And when we looked at that in a very systematic way, uh, you know, we found that we actually weren't doing as well as we thought we were. Uh, you know, what we were doing was, uh, you know, our, our minds immediately went to, you know, where where we felt we, you know, we were doing this really well, <laughs> but, you know, conveniently, you know, forgot or discounted or disregarded, uh, you know, all of the other places where we weren't. And so we underwent, you know, a, a process uh, to identify those things that were important to us, important to our values, uh, make sure that they were integrated into our kind of routine standard operating procedures and policies, uh, and then uh, hold ourselves accountable by ensuring that we are, uh, you know, keeping, you know, keeping to uh, those uh, promises that we made to ourselves. And I think that's what we have to do, you know, across, you know, all of the work that we do, the, the, the transformation uh, will occur uh, when we are fully, 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 uh, you know, integrating uh, the the voices, the experience, the perspectives, uh, you know, of women and girls uh, in the work that we do. Yeah, and it is important to continue to sort of ask yourself if you're actually doing it right, right? Like, I think it can imagine it easily getting carried away. Like, this is what we're doing, never stepping back to say, is it working um, I don't know, Oni or Justine, did you want to comment on this before I move on? Because it is an interesting concept. I, I did want to say, I, I really like some of the terms Marianne used. She said it, it down payment. And I think that's just, you know, very apt. Like in in everything we do to drive women's health forward, we want it to be sustainable. And we want to make sure that the decisions the whole collaborative, so funders, um, program people take, it represents the views of women. And then we can take those views and we can sort of funnel it up into the broader system and bring it back to make sure the system actually meets their needs. So, you know, I, I agree entirely about the thoughtfulness and how iterative we have to be in planning and measuring and going back to check with women because, you know, over time, not days, but over time, needs evolve and as society changes, we want to be sure that we're doing the right thing at every point in time. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and I mean, Justine, if if the focus on gender was integrated into like monitoring and evaluation systems, wouldn't this help African countries plan and improve their own health services and programs? Uh, yes, indeed. Um, it has been well explained by Mary Ann. We thank you for that. At uh, this point, I think it's more important than before. Make sure that uh, we use tools in monitoring and evaluation that will help us to address pathways that highlight the gender-based health inequalities. Uh, and Mary mentioned that as we move forward, it's very important to uh, embrace the multisectoral approaches. So as we move to work with um, other sectors, it's really important to systematically collect data, analyze this data, so that we are able to segregate this data according to gender in many of the areas. For example, in health, who is mostly affected? Men, women, in terms of education, uh, when it comes to employment, at the beginning, it was well highlighted that most of the women do not take up um, leadership positions in most of the organization. Uh, when it comes to social services, who is benefiting and who is left out? Uh, when it comes to income, who is getting more and who is getting less? How can we help these ones? Especially, it is very clear that women are really getting less. So how can we help them if we are to go into embrace the multisectoral approach? So it's really very important to pick out these minority or inequalities when we are addressing uh, future programs to improve 
women's health moving forward. Yeah, very true. Um, so if we take now, if we step into our aspirational thinking that we're trying to do in this whole conversation, sort of thinking forward, what if women's health actually was, you know, gender, gender equity was actually a key element of women's health in, in Africa. I'd love to hear each part, each of you guys talk about what you see a, re- a reimagined future where gender, gender equity is actually front and center. So Marianne, what would access to maternal care look like in this kind of world? And, and uh, sort of how does it weave into the need also for all types of equity? Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Deborah. You know, I, we have been challenged uh, by continually uh, not being able to meet goals and targets that we set ourselves as a global health community. You know, whether it was the millennial development goals, you know, now with the sustainable development goals, you know, at least from a maternal health and women's health perspective, we've always kind of got halfway there, you know, we're, you know, improved or, you know, 44% to goal. You know, now when you look at the data, at least before the COVID pandemic, um, you know, on aggregate, on average, you know, we would have had to be, you know, two times faster in our progress, you know, in in order to... uh, hit that 2030 uh, finish line target. You know, obviously the COVID pandemic, uh, you know, has has worsened that. It has slowed our rate of progress. And so when you look at it, we're, we we can't be incremental about this, you know, if, if we're going to continue to be incremental um, and just, you know, either spread or scale programs that are, you know, already in place, we, we are not going to get to target. You know, I I believe that that missing fifty percent is actually the missing missing fifty percent of the population, uh, which is the um, full contribution uh, and inclusion of of women and girls in the solutions. And and I think when we figure out as a society, uh, you know, how to do that, you know, when we are truly a gender equal society, uh, you know, those contributions, those you know, fully fully formed, fully fledged, fully actualized contributions of women and girls, that is what is going to create the inflection point, uh, you know, in our progress towards these sustainable goals. And from a maternal mortality perspective, it really is back to our Merck for Mothers vision, you know, that that no woman has to die while giving life. And we have zero, uh, you know, preventable deaths, uh, you know, zero unmet need, uh, you know, for family uh, planning uh, and and zero gender based violence. Uh, you know the, those are the commitments we made at the Nairobi su- summit as as part of the uh, you know ICPD uh, you know twenty uh, fifth anniversary and and those are the commitments that we need to continue to hold ourselves to. And and given the challenges that you very well very accurately explain, how how do we set up um, or make sure that whatever you do in pregnancy and postpartum care sets women up for a, a lifetime of health? I, at, at the basis, I, I think it's about valuing and, and respecting women. You know, I, I really do think it's it's as, as simple as that. Um, it, it may be complicated, you know, it, it, it may require more resources, but, but if we value uh, women and we take it upon ourselves to understand their lives and and the 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 journeys that they have to go through in order just to you know access basic care um and we solve for that with them uh you know i I do think that 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 is what is going to make the difference yeah um oni what what do you think what is your sort of vision of a reimagined future where gender equity is front and center what does it look like um, I think Marianne ended exactly where I wanted to start. Um, Everyone's really f- being very helpful that way. That's great. <laughs> it's, it's Perfect. Like, I have such a big smile because she said value, and that is exactly the thought in my head. And I think she spoke eloquently and very accurately about the challenges of maternal health and seeing women as mothers, but it's value women as equal people. Value women beyond their reproductive capacity, their ability to have children, or the basis of their marital status, which is pretty common in Sub-Saharan Africa. And this means, like she said, if we consider women's lived experiences, then we can consult with them on how best to structure healthcare to meet 
all their needs, not their, not just their antenatal and postnatal care needs, because women, that is an integral part of being a woman. And I have kids of my own, but they have needs that go beyond that. Like Justine had said earlier on in the conversation, this would mean providing comprehensive sex education to both girls and boys and allowing girls the opportunity to dream of more for their lives and allowing boys the opportunity to see girls as equal partners and more than mothers. For me, it would mean let the health workforce and its leadership look like the people it caters to. Like we don't want only community healthcare workers being women speaking to the women in rural areas or even in urban areas. Let the health leadership reflect the population of women, which is basically half of the country, and allow them to make decisions that actually drive women's health agenda forward. Reduce paternalism, like let let the health workforce be trained, intentionally trained and empowered to treat women as equal because the health system is a microsim of the society. And so all the gender bias and inequality that exists in our society percolates right into the health system. Women should be provided with comprehensive information every time they come into a facility. They should be seen as autonomous people capable of taking decisions about their own health. And like I had said earlier, we want to expand that definition of women's health to look at preventive screening for NCDs, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and cancers are becoming a leading cause of death in addition to poor maternal health, which continues to exist in sub-Saharan Africa. Women should be provided with comprehensive reproductive health care information to everyone who needs it. Like people shouldn't say, oh, do you have kids? Don't you have kids? Are you married? Are you not married? That's not appropriate. Care should be intrinsically respectful. It should accommodate all kinds of women. And we know that the definition of gender is much more fluid now than what we define it as, you know, male and female. And this should accommodate all kinds of mothers, all kinds of women. So providing support for both, you know, their reproductive needs and the other things they need. Men should be encouraged to participate in women's healthcare. They should be empowered to come and to listen and to learn and to speak. And in thus doing, perhaps we even or level out the playing field. And those are just a few of my thoughts. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, and thank you, Oni, for, for sharing all of that. It's so true. I mean, I love this. I actually wrote down care should be intrinsically respectful and sort of circled it because isn't that the element that you really hope to get to, you know, when you're, when you're moving forward and Justine, I mean, I would think you're a practitioner, you're there doing what, what are you see? <laughs> what do you say about all these thoughts? Yeah, all those are very beautiful thoughts, uh, thoughts in the positive direction moving forward. But in addition to that, as we move forward assessing where women have reached in terms of empowerment and gender equality, I think it's very important also to see what the men are doing in terms of their uh, attitude and values when it comes to men's gender. And uh, it's also important, if we are to succeed, we cannot move on our own. It's always better when it comes to maternal health to consider views from both, you know, the, as a couple. To what extent do these two people, men, wife and husband, for example, sit down uh, when it comes to decision making? So uh, in that way, we may be able to minimize uh, the root causes of um, violence in homes and that will help us for example to encourage men to uh, to support their women when it comes to utilization of services so instead of you looking at uh, one gender i propose and i suggest strongly that we need to move as a couple not as women alone so we need also to investigate really what has really disempowered the men because uh, when you look at our social norms before, our great-great-parents were really in for their families. They were supporting their wives. But when you look at the young people of these days, they are not in for their uh, siblings. They are not in there for their wives. They are not there for their children. We need to investigate what has caused this disempowerment as we move forward. Yeah, Justin, I, I agree entirely with you. And... Every time gender inequality is replicated, it, like it, it, it is a disadvantage to everyone, to, to both men 
and to women. And I feel like you've spoken a lot to like the culture of toxic masculinity and what society imposes, you know, um, it means to be a man on certain people and how this sort of translates into um, violent behavior or even non-healthcare seeking behavior from a male perspective and how ultimately if we look at gender as a spectrum and we are able to um, provide the education and resources and cultural change where we can empower women because there is a culture of patriarchy but at the same time enable men to see that this is that they they, they do not have power over women and this is not how to express your gender then ultimately we do the whole world a favor um in addition one thing that justine said that i would really like to follow up on is many times the health system reinforces this belief that women are the custodians of them and their children's health but if the health system opens it up to parents or partners and they draw men in, then we move away from putting the burden of women's health and child health on the woman and making it a societal or a family burden. And I, I think it's really important to acknowledge that integrating all genders into the health system is important for people's needs to be met and for us to achieve the objective of physical and mental health for people. Yeah. No, I, you know, it, it's so funny you mentioned that because, again, you know, thinking about where we have blinders as a global health community or as a society. Um, one of, if I could just share a story uh, that, that relates to this point, um, and thank you so much, Justine, for bringing it up. Uh, we, we know, uh, you know, that if we were able to uh, address the unmet need, uh, you know, for modern contraception, uh, we would be able to reduce the global maternal mortality burden by, you know, up to 30%. And so, you know, uh, a number of Merck for Mothers investments that, uh, you know, are, are in that family planning space. Uh, one of our investments is a digital platform called Ask Nibi, uh, where it, you know, shares information, uh, you know, on uh, these, you know, sexual reproductive health topics, uh, you know, on, uh, you know, uh, online platforms, both, you know, smart, smart and dumb, uh, you know, as, as the vernacular goes. And the original, you know, campaigns, uh, you know, original kind of interfaces, uh, you know, with the public were, were really geared towards women and girls. And, and this, this was about family planning. Uh, this happened in Kenya. Uh, they, when they looked at their data, they saw that actually, you know, 25%, you know, of the questions that were get, they were getting, and the, these were conversations that were happening, you know, through, through the phones, 25% of the conversations were coming from men. Um, that was a surprise to me. Uh, in India, uh, that percentage is even higher. And that just tells me that, or at least, that, you know, I think one of the things that it, it can tell us is that when you create opportunities for boys and men to get this information, um, to act on this information, and perhaps, you know, on a medium where they don't feel that they need to, uh, you, you know, um, exhibit, uh, you know, stereotypes are, are around toxic masculinity or, or, or male gender, you actually have them seeking information <laughs> and, and seeking products and services to keep them and their partners healthy. You know, you would hear questions on that platform. You know, I, I want to find out more about sexual health. I want to find out how to protect my girlfriend. Um, and so we, we need to reach out and, and create these inclusive spaces where everybody feels comfortable, uh, you know, to uh, get the information and act on the information that empowers themselves and, and, and those that are close to them and those that they love. I think that's such a good point. It is, it, it, it's funny how we automatically think, oh, we have to talk about gender, gender equity. You, that must mean all about women, but you're so right about making sure that the men have the ability to ask and learn and, and to uh, assume that male partners do want to understand more about the health. And that's, a, that's a great example. Um, Oni, did you have anything you wanted to add on this one? Uh, no, I think I think Marianne said it very well. But I just want to emphasize that when when we get to that point where you know the male genders are involved and women genders are involved, then we create we create space for everybody in between. And I feel like the in between is not as often discussed. But I know that this is a big part of Justine's work. And what we really want to is get to a healthcare system within which like you said, people are respected and they can access care and they're not 
challenged or uh, no, no one is less than anyone else in society. I know we have just only a couple minutes left, but I wanted to throw out, uh, like, if there's one, can you imagine one sort of action item, one thing that can actually be new done now to get closer to this new reimagined future? I know none of you probably expected that one, so I'll just throw it at you anyway. Justine, what do you think? Uh, I don't believe that there is only there is any one single bullet that can help us reach where we want. What we need as Mary Ann mentioned, we need to get views of the people we are targeting in our programming, what they want us to do, and then maybe we can guide them on how to get there, but we need to bring them on board. At the same time, we, the good news is that uh, most of the men are not really so negative about women's health. It's only that we've not provided them with the information. So we need to go back on the drawing board. Let us get, the, get it to know the missing information and we share it with many of varying capacity in the forms that are really easy for them to digest. Marianne, that's a very good point, Justin. You know, I, I think it's follow the money. <laughs> you know, I, I think that if we uh, create economic opportunities for women, and we know that those econo- being able to actualize those economic opportunities depend on education, depend on health, um, that that is what is going to to make the difference, um, especially uh, on the continent of Africa, where so much gender inequity, I do believe, you know, goes back to limits and constraints that, that are placed on economic opportunity for women. I love you, Marianne. And you, you've done it three times. Follow the money. I'm going to say what I want to say. I think, I think Marianne is right. And my thought is also a money thought. It's, in, it's how health is financed. And I know like there are many mechanisms to do this from insurance to vouchers. But I want to say put, put the money for healthcare in the hands of women and girls. Allow them direct access. Don't premise it on a man or even for girls, a parent, like in some way, allow them the financial means to access health care. I feel like that is something that is often missing when you have to wait for someone to approve your spending, when you have to wait for someone to give you the money, it bars you from hospitals. And just because I can, I'm going to make one last joke. The other thing is restructure bathrooms. Only a man could have to think outside the bathrooms. <laughs> <laughs> But don't don't feel bad, you know, going to any bathroom you need to as well. Yep. <laughs> you know, don't stand in the line. Just, you know, if it's empty, go in. <laughs> I think we should make that our tagline. Just use the bathrooms. Or give us more bathrooms, any of the bathrooms. Um, this was, I think you guys raised, I knew I threw that one at you, but it's so true. Just, you know, get at the number. There's not a single thing we can do, but if you do sort of, um, you know, Money is always important to get anything done. Data and and awareness are so valuable in all this. So um, I can't believe our hour is already practically up, but I wanted to just thank you so much to all of our panelists. Marianne, did you want to say anything more? I feel like cut you no, off a little bit there. No, no. I, I you know, I, I love this uh, put put the money and the control in the hands of women and girls. And and I actually think now because of digital technologies, we can do that. And we can do that in a way that hopefully empowers um, and, uh, you know, doesn't increase risk for, you know, stigma or violence. Yeah. I mean, I guess if we have, we have to thank the pandemic for something, maybe it's the, the more rapid use of these digital technologies. So look at the brighter side of something somehow of that, of we got from it. Yeah. Um, so I would like to officially thank you all to all of your panelists, Dr. Marianne Etiabet, Dr. Onikebe Owolabi, and Dr. Justine Bukenya. I think we had, that was a great discussion and it's almost like you were thinking of the same things, um, and able to segue perfectly from one to another. So almost like we were in the same room. Um, so great discussion on gender equity and, and women's health in Africa. I think Vital Strategies will have a follow-up discussion on women's leadership and health in a couple of weeks. Some of that we talked about um, and the importance of it, we talked about a little bit here, but there'll be another one right here on Twitter Spaces. So um, keep your eye out for more details and make sure you join and keep following um, at Vital Strat for more exciting resources, blogs, and videos that'll be shared this week for International Women's Day. 
And if you enjoyed this conversation and wanted to share it, just look for it. It will be put into the, it's part of the Public Health Power Hour podcast that you can find on, as everyone likes to say, on your favorite podcast platform. I'm not sure if people really have favorites one, just the one that you always go to. So thank you again to all of our speakers. This was a really exciting and interesting conversation. And I know I learned a lot. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Public Health Power Hour. We hold these live conversations several times a month on Twitter Spaces. Follow us at VitalStrat on Twitter to join the conversation in real time. We'd love to see you there. To learn more about how Vital Strategies is reimagining public health, go to www.vitalstrategies.org. I'm Steve Hamill with Vital Strategies. Join us next time on the Public Health Power Hour.